So we've been uh, in a, a series called Don't Move the Lampstand for the last, I don't know, five, six weeks. It just, it just goes on and on. And the thing is, I thought it was going to end, but we've got to keep going because there's, there's more in Scripture that, that's dealing with it. So just, if you like it, great. If not, just, uh, just you know, just take, take a couple Sundays off. Come back a little bit later, and then we'll, we'll pick up where, where, we, uh, where we are going next. One of the things... <laughs> no, 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 come to church. I'm sorry, Jack, you're right. Everyone come to church all the time. And, and speaking of that, one of the things that this, uh, this series has been about is why people come to church. Uh, the, the, and I'm reminding us every week, because it's very important that we recognize this, uh, the reason that people come to church has nothing to do with what God thinks we're supposed to do. Right? The reason that we come to church, uh, most people, 80%, say they want to get closer to God. They want to feel close to God. Most that this is about us, right? Like God's up there and we want to be closer to him. We want to have, presumably have some experience. Uh, at the, the bottom there, but still very important, 16%, you need to fa- uh, please your family and spouse. Uh, 20% feel a religious obligation. If I don't go, God's going to zap me with his lightning bolts. Um, there's lots of different reasons, but it's interesting. We saw the very first week of this series. That's not why God thinks we go to church. God thinks we go to church because it's, God believes that there, that there needs to be somebody who is regularly doing this. That is shining the light on Jesus. Like that's, that's why we do church. That's why this whole building exists. And that's not good. Oh my gosh, really? Should have, should have tried that. It worked the last five weeks. Why, why quit now? If this doesn't work, then just, wow. Lloyd, what'd you do? This is your fault. Lloyd, Lloyd stole my lamp, so we're going to blame him. Uh, well, does he think of the light bulb blue? It, does, it looks fine. You figure it out. Okay, great. Uh, the idea is that, um, that, that, the whole point of, of our gathering is that Jesus needs to be highlighted. He needs to be illuminated to the world and to us. And so God has put together a group of people, the church, and our job is to regularly gather to shine the light on Jesus. It's okay. It's just, it's just an image. We get it. Yeah, see, this is a, this is a condemnation of Coast Bible Church. It's a, the <laughs> if that falls, okay, it's fine. Don't even worry about it. It's good. Um, and so we, we've looked at all the things that do happen. So if, you, if we're actually doing this, if we're shining light on Jesus, we're illuminating him, we're praising him, we're proclaiming him, then a lot of things happen. We saw that people who need to get rescued come and they get rescued. People get baptized. People fall in love with scripture. Uh, what in Acts is called, they, follow, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for us is getting, getting to know it here in scripture. Um, we saw that they... they, they uh, they gather in a community and they do life together and, and they, they worship together. And when the, when the light's shining on Jesus, last week we saw that the people share so that no one falls through the cracks, right? Doesn't matter if you got stuff or you don't. When the church is together, we take care of our own and everyone gets to participate. Well, this is awesome. That's Acts 2. It's a beautiful uh, image of the early church. But the bad news is that it didn't last. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see what happens when, when, we, when someone moves the lampstand, right? When we get away from the mission and start illuminating something else. And what happened to the Jerusalem church is that early on, everyone was, was doing that or proclaiming Jesus. And, and then stuff starts to crop up. 
and things start to go a little bit awry. And now we're going to see where that leads the church. So this is uh, Acts 5. Um, and it's, a, it's a kind of a disturbing story. We're only going to read half of it, uh, just the part that applies here. But uh, it goes like this. However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds of the sale. He brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard the conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. A little bit later, we're not reading this, the rest of this text, but a little bit later, his wife comes in. Sort of the same thing. Peter's like, hey, did you sell that property? She's like, yep, here's all the money. He's like, all of it? She's like, yep. He's like, oh. And she dies too. What's happened is the Jerusalem church uh, has, has gotten really big. Lots and lots of people have come. And the apostles are daily, they're, they're out there, they're, they're spreading the message. But, uh, but people are starting to see now that, you know, hey, Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the church, we're all trying to do life together and we're living and everything is going. And then suddenly some of the momentum fades and some of the, the priorities shift. And so what we get in Acts 5 and 6 is kind of a uh, level fallout from what happens when people stop the mission. If we go back to the text, notice it starts with however, right? However. And the reason is, is because we saw last week that one of the things that happened in the early church was that people started going, selling property and just taking all the money and making sure that it was used so that nobody who was lacking in resources couldn't participate with the whole community, right? And it was just something that they were doing. It was like they, they, they woke up one day and they realized we're all one tribe. We're one people in, 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 in Christ. We're all praising him. We're celebrating his life. And some of us can't do it. And so those of us who have some stuff, we're, we're selling it so that everyone can participate. Now, th- this is just their tradition. It's what they did. They're, it's not like God was sitting up there being like, if you don't, <laughs> he plays the piano, he changes. I mean, this guy's incredible. All right. You're hired. Um, it, it was as if they're, they're, they're looking around and, and, and they're wondering what is going to happen next. And, 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 and can they keep doing this forever? No, it's impossible to keep doing it forever. But it was what they were led to do and it became the sort of the practice of the church. Okay. Check the light next, next week. Got it. It's not as though God's sitting there being like, like, if you don't give me every last cent of your sale, I'm going to be mad at you. Notice that Luke doesn't even tell us how much he holds back. Like, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 8%, who knows. But he withholds some of the sale with his wife knowledge. God doesn't care about the money that much. What's going on? What is the issue here? What's the problem with what Ananias and Sapphira have done? Is it, is it that they didn't give 100%? That's the issue? No. Mick Jagger, 
dude, I can't believe the guy's still alive. He seriously looks like a skeleton at this point. Still on tour? Yeah, like at one point, wasn't he like in the hospital and like three days later he was back on the road? I mean, the guy's insane. He loves the rock and roll. Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger is like the quintessential all-time great rock star, okay? And what that means is that Mick Jagger from the very beginning was a bad boy. He was naughty. And he was like, I'm, you know, Western civilization, I don't buy into your values. I want to be famous and rich and I want to rock and tell the man that I don't like him and I'm going to get as many girls as I can. If you got the drugs, I'm going to use them and I'm going to be the best. And people loved it. They loved it. They thought this guy was the coolest. He, he didn't play by the rules. And he rose to the top. And that's kind of how our, our culture celebrates people of, you know, celebrities. The idea is it's the people, no one's sitting around being like, oh, Bill Gates, you know, he was really working for others when he was trying to make his billions and billions at Microsoft. No, the dude was cutthroat. He was vicious. He was like, I'm going to get to the top. I'm going to win. I'm going to be the best. And he did it. And people look at that and they're like, that guy's awesome. In the rock and roll game, the key is to be naughty. I'm the naughtiest, and the naughtiest ones get to the top. And then when, when these rock and, rock and rollers, now the rappers, when they die young, everyone's like, what happened? It's like, well, well, geez, if you spend all of your time, like, doing drugs and, you know, getting into violence, like, it's a, not a shocker. But that's the key. That's the way you come up. That's how you get rich and famous. Until one young woman came along and flipped the script. Sweet Tay-Tay. Her, her friends call her Swifties, or the, no, her fans are Swifties. Taylor Swift. See, the, Mick Jagger was like, I'm, the, I'm naughty. Taylor was like, I'm just a, a sweet little angel with an acoustic guitar. And I want to tell you my songs about falling in love. And people were like, oh, what a precious little, she's so, she's so wonderful. Let's give her all of our money. Let's put her on TV. She's kind, she's good. My favorite Taylor Swift album is 1989. And the conceit of the album is genius. Because she's like late 20s at this point. And, and, and she started out like her whole shtick was like, I'm so naive and kind and loving. But the thing was, at a certain point, you can only be in the, 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 the eye of the public for so long without being a little bit kind of corrupt. And so the 1989 is her, her pop album where it's all about moving to New York. And the conceit of the album is like, sweet hometown Tennessee girl goes to the big city. And finds out how difficult it is. And she gets preyed upon by the cynics and the the evil men who just want to take advantage of her. Poor sweet Taylor. Let's give her more money and put her on TV and give her commercials. She's incredible. We're going to go and scream, Ah, we're into Taylor. You're amazing. You're just like me. You know what she did? She got all the same stuff that Mick Jagger got. But she did it by being a good guy, a good girl. Right? I mean, really, does Taylor live that much different of a life than Mick Jagger? I mean, she tours the world. Millions and millions of people love her. Uh, the only difference, really, is that Mick Jagger's like, yeah, I'm a piece of garbage. And she's like, oh, poor me. I hope I don't get dumped by another boyfriend. Ananias and Sapphira played the same game. They're playing the Taylor Swift game. They want all the stuff that Mick Jagger has, the, the status, the, the power, the influence. But in the church, you don't get status and power and influence by just, I'm a bad boy. No, in the church, you get power and status and influence by being holy. 
by being generous. And that's the thing that happens when the lampstand gets moved, right? The community sort of, in, as a whole, like some of the focus stops, stops going on Jesus and people looking around being like, hey, this is like every other human community institution. There's people who are on the top. There's the winners, the best, the best at Jesus, the ones who win the Jesus contest and those who don't. And it seems like if I'm the one who wins the Jesus contest, people will look up to me, they'll want to be like me, I'll get to have all the great things that come with status and power. I just got to be a good guy or a good girl to get it. That's the first thing in your note sheets. When the lampstand gets moved, Christians begin serving and doing good. Why? To acquire power and status. Did you know that uh, up until 1856 in uh, India, in the Hindu culture, it was illegal to remarry if you were a widowed woman. So if you were a woman and your husband died up until 1856 in India, in Hindu culture, it was illegal for you to remarry. The British came in and they were like, this is awful. And the reason it was awful is because in Hindu culture, uh, once a woman's husband died, she was expected uh, basically to die with him. And if she didn't get on the funeral pyre, do I have a picture of an Indian? Yeah. Either get on the funeral pyre with him or just mourn and, and, and sackcloth and ashes until uh, she basically, you know, forever. And, and she was expected really, honestly, the, the mortality rate was huge. It was, it was, it was gnarly. Like the, the, all these widows were dying because in the culture it was expected that their families would leave them, would stop supplying their needs because it was their job to kind of basically die with uh, their husbands. Um, it was, it was awful. And so the British came in and because British were Westerners and when Westerners see something, we're like, oh, let's fix it. So let's pass a law. So they passed the law saying now widows can get married to fix this problem of all these dead widows. interesting thing happened over the next 150 years. Suddenly, in Hindu culture, there was this really huge new dating pool. And what happened was, in the dating pool, in order for a widow to get remarried, she had to appear as though she was following the, the trends and the, and the values of the culture. So what she would have to do is she would have to pretend like she was mourning. Oh, I miss my husband so much. And, and, and widows would end up actually having contests to see who could be the purest, who could be the nicest, who could uh, give up the most food, who could, who could uh, flagellate themselves and be the most austere, sincere mourners for the husbands. Because if they did, they increased their chance of getting remarried. Ironic. And so this thing that was supposed to be good, right? Mourning your husband after, he's, after, he, after he dies turns into like a, a strategy to find a suitor. And I wonder how much, the extent to which we're kind of doing some of the same stuff in our Christian lives. So a little motivation check here. Question number one, what is my primary service, the church, my work, or my family? The, 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 Indian, uh, the, the Hindu widow, her primary service was to mourn her husband, right? Well, everybody here has, in, in your spheres of influence, where you work, your family, uh, here at the church, you have something that, you're kind, that you do. It's your primary thing, it's what you're known for, Right? 
For some people, that's giving. For other people, it's worshiping. For some people, it's talking. For some people, it's, it's helping. There's lots of different things that we do. Identify that. Number two, why did I start doing this? In the case of the Hindu woman, she probably started mourning her husband because she was genuinely sad that he was dead. Right? That was her man. Now he's gone. And it hurts. And mourning is the right way to deal with that. For a lot of us, we get involved, say, you know, your, your job and your family, you're the, the authoritarian, like, you're the discipliner. Right? And you started that because you saw your kids and you wanted to make sure that they grew up in the right way. For some people here at the church, you get into a particular ministry because you just know that that's the best way that you know how to love and serve God. And you're excited about it. It's great. Question number three, why am I still doing it? For a lot of people, it's because, well, that's what I've always done. At a certain point for the the Hindu widow, maybe it just becomes the the new normal. Mourning and, and denying yourself, that's just the way it is. That's what I do now. But maybe, maybe you started to notice what this gets you. You've noticed, you know, that, that being, having really good kids, you know, people are like, wow, you're really good at raising kids. And maybe that's nice. Maybe that feels good. Maybe you love to help and, and, and people just give you those like, oh man, it's, if, if, if you weren't around, I don't know what we would do. If we didn't have you, I just, the whole thing is going to fall apart. You're crucial. You're essential. Number four, has it become a way for me to get kudos, kudos appear holy or good? That's what happens with the Hindu ladies. Like, oh, she's the best one. She's the, she's the, and boy, doesn't that make her attractive and desirable? And last but not least, would I be happy to give it away? It's crazy. Like in any community, any institution, you know, when you become like an essential functioning part you kind of develop like ownership over something and, and, and you really become known for that thing and you're great at that thing and, that, and that's like, that's, that's who you are. And, and, and if, if that were taken from you, you might even not remember who you are anymore. You might lose meaning and purpose in your life. You might, you, I can't give this away because the next person is gonna, they can't do it as good as I can. I'm the best. I, the church is too important. If, if this were taken from me, the church would fall apart. So I've got to hold on to it. I'm the only one who can do this for the, look, there's a lot of people who could, could lead this company, but I'm the one with a vision. And, and if my vision, if we don't follow my vision, the whole thing falls apart. So I can't, I can't hand this off. Disaster. And if I'm being honest, I really like what I'm getting out of it. And so what started as this starts to move away.
and, and Jesus falls into the shadows. But things look really, really good for us. Let's get back to the text. Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Again, the issue here is the lying, right? Like, the, the, the problem was is that everyone was doing this. They were selling stuff and then giving the proceeds to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold something. They kept a little for themselves, but pretended like they gave everything to the apostles. So the issue here is the lie. It's them trying to get the status that comes from being a generous donor and, and without actually doing all the generous donation that everyone else is doing. Wasn't that property yours to keep? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? Isn't it interesting, you know, Luke, in Luke and Acts, and in both texts in the New Testament, Luke's very focused on resources, money, cash. It's something he cares very much about because he knows how dangerous and powerful money is. It can be used to, to get influence. But it's not just about the money here. The money's not the issue. The issue is this is what Ananias and Sapphira have to offer. And so that's where the enemy's going to get. Do you notice that Satan influenced you? And I don't know if literally Satan was walking around being like, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, I'm going to mess with you guys. Or maybe there's like some demonic presence. Who knows? But whatever the case is, Peter recognizes that the enemy, the demonic kingdom, has come after Ananias and Sapphira. And where has he gotten them? Did he get them? Like, what was the thing that he he saw? That's where I'm going to get purchased on these people. For them, it was money. Why? Because they had a lot of it. That was their thing. They were known as wealthy. They were givers. They were helpers, providers. That was what they were known for. And so that's the place where they were strongest. That's where they looked the best. And so that's where Satan goes after them. But, you know, there's a lot more than cash that makes this place run. Cash is important. And Luke, you know, knocks, he hits on that because he recognizes all institutions require money to work. And so, yes, it's obviously important. But there's a whole lot more than just money that goes into any community, any institution, especially the church, your job, your family. I got the next slide. I got the, the cash, the cash money in the top left. Yeah, that's great. Cash that, and there are a lot of people here. That's, that's your primary function. That's how you see yourself. I'm a giver. I'm a provider. But there's also people who do other important things in the church. On the top right there, you can see that, um, that African American lady is really good at listening. And listening seems like a kind of a, who, you know, who cares? But dude, it turns out that if you can be an empathetic listener, that can be an incredible gift to people. You may not have a ton of money, but you might be really good at hearing and empathizing and caring for people. Do you realize that if that's a strength of yours, that you're going to be able to leverage that to get influence and power wherever you go? Something as simple as just hearing someone else, affirming them, not judging them. Offering them new opportunities and new ideas of where to go. That skill, that gift, if that's your thing, if that's your resource, you can, you can leverage that all over the place. How many times do we hear about the leader guy who's at some church and he's really good at listening? And he's hanging out with this girl, you know, and he's like, oh gosh, your, your problems are terrible. Your husband sucks. I can't believe that's the word. And then suddenly, affair happens. He's ditched his family. Because that thing that made him great, that gift that God gave, that's the spot where the enemy gets involved and says, yeah, keep listening. 
She needs this. She needs you. You're the only one who can help fix her. We have a policy here at Coast, just so that you know, um, all of our, no, no, one, no one on our staff is allowed to be uh, in a private one-on-one meeting with someone of the opposite sex. Moreover, we're not allowed to be with minors um, without uh, another person present. We call it the rule of three. Those are you know, some simple safeguards that we've tried to put in place because of the incredible power of temptation that focuses on your, on your strengths, on what you're best at. You're the one who's visionary. You've got the great ideas. You're the one who like casts this beautiful, this is where we are, this is where we're headed. And people buy in, they're like, oh my gosh, that is beautiful. I do want to pursue that. I want to go that. And you get known for that. That's your thing. That's your jam. You're the one who can, who can show us the way. And you do it over and over and over. And everyone's like, gosh, you always have the right stuff. And then one day, your vision doesn't pan out. You went a bridge too far. You overextended. And suddenly you're left looking at your life being like, if I don't have the answers, if I don't have the, then I got nothing. And so you have this incredible gift that God's given you to perceive and to see and to cast vision and to lead people um, in your work, in your family. You're the, you're the parent that, like, that shows the, the whole family where we're going to head. You know, you're the, the, the person at work who says, hey, this is what our company can be. You're the person in the church that says, this is how we can start to become the church that God wants us to be. And, and, and that's the spot. That's your strength. That's your resource. And that's where the, the devil's like... The bottom right, you have the uh, helpers, the people who get the work done. How can that possibly be a strength? How can that possibly be something that, that the enemy could get involved in and, and shake up and mess up? Are you kidding? Oh, I can't. I can't let anybody else do this. I'm the only one. I got this. Or even better, no one ever helps me. I do everything for these people. They're a bunch of lazy, you know, layabouts. You're welcome, God. You're welcome, everybody. It doesn't matter how good and how blessed and how much something comes from God. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. Like, as soon as this starts to happen, look out, crash, calamity. It's all, like, danger zone. When, when the gift and the strength starts, starts subtly moving away from shining light on Jesus and starts shining light on me or on something else, like, look out, even the best, most amazing things can, can be. Next, next thing, your note sheets. When the lampstand gets moved, the enemy tempts us with our greatest gifts. The enemy's not going to go after you in a place you're already weak. He's done that. No. When he really wants to destroy the church, destroy your your family, when he wants to destroy uh, your work, your community, he's going to make you crash and burn where you're strongest. I 
Oxfam, Oxfam, uh, one of the one of the premier anti-poverty nonprofits. Um, maybe still, but at least up until a couple of years ago, turns out that Oxfam, I think it's a British, originally was British. I think they're now stationed in Nigeria, but, um, they were renowned for having like all these different, you know, interesting, innovative ways of trying to combat poverty, things like micro loans, stuff like that. Um, and, and fabulous organization became very, very wealthy. Well, okay. I guess you, it's true. Nonprofits are wealthy. It's ridiculous. Whatever. Uh, they, they became, they thrived, Right. A couple years ago, it turns out that uh, a bunch of humanitarian aid workers who were sent to Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake that killed so many um, were basically trading humanitarian aid for sexual favors from the, the indigenous population, the locals. And everyone was horrified, like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. How did that happen? These people are do-gooders. That's like what they're known for. Their whole shtick is they go out and they want to save the world. How can people who are so good, so, you know, altruistic, so kind and compassionate, how can they be suddenly in the, engaged in these horrible tit-for-tat, you know, examples of like just total exploitation? How is that possible? Well, actually, social sciences know very well what this is. It's called moral license. Uh, Moral license is the notion that if you do something good and you're known for being someone who's good, you start to think, well, I'm good. So if I want this, this must be good too. Another way it works is um, some people will have like a credit and debt system. So they'll be like, well, I did X, Y, and Z, and those are like good points for me. So I guess it's okay if I do this over here to like, you know, do a withdrawal from the, the Good Works Bank. That's true. That's how people rationalize what they do. Uh, there was a study where uh, <laughs> uh, some, so, uh, there were three groups of ladies, and they were all invited into a, uh, to purchase uh, cosmetics. And um, there was the control group that went in and purchased cosmetics. And when they left, there was an older lady in distress who asked them for help. Um, and then the second group uh, went in and they were, the second two groups had an option. They could purchase an environmentally friendly makeup set for a slight markup. Or they could get the regular one. The ladies who went in and purchased the, uh, the, the environmentally friendly, the green makeup were disproportionately more likely to tell the lady in need, no thanks. Because they're a good person. They're saving the earth. That lady can help herself. You don't understand. What I'm doing is good. I'm helping. I'm serving the Lord. I'm improving the lives of my family. I'm good. Motivation check. What are my primary gifts, strengths, or resources? This is um, is actually sometimes hard for people. A lot of times we're wrong about this. We think that we're actually good at X when we are... Good at why, but one one way to think about this is: What do people depend on you for? Right? What what is it that what is it that like in your church, your work, your home? What is it that people are looking to you for? Because whatever that is, that's probably going to be pushing towards your strengths. 
because people have others, not you, have identified what your, your value to them is. And so they, they go to you for that. So there's like a lot of guys out here like, well, I'm basically an ATM machine. <laughs> I walk around like, here, Nintendo Switch for you. <laughs> oh, by the way, Jeff, I, I, uh, not that I'm thinking about you, but um, I, I broke down and got a Switch for my kids. Yeah, really for myself, because I really wanted to play Breath of the Wild. Um, but they love it. And it's horrible, because when we play it together, they fight like you would not believe. It's horrible. Like, they're screaming at each other. Every time we play this thing, somebody cries. So thanks. What are my primary gifts, strengths, or resources? Uh, number two. So once you've identified that, then this. Am I using them for God, or for me, or for a little of both? Right? God gets a win. I get a win. Hey, that's great, right? I, I, <laughs> I'm telling you, in order to go from where Oxfam was, you know, I'm a humanitarian aid worker to trading sexual favors for uh, humanitarian aid. That, that's a pretty, you got to imagine that there was a point where it started out kind of like this, like I'm doing this for the good of the universe, whatever. And then it was a point where it was like, well, you know, I, if, if the universe is good, good. But it's also nice that I'm getting a little something on the side too. And then it's like, you know what I'm about? I'm about me. And I wonder if maybe there's a little slippery slope there when it's, when it's like, it's a little bit for me, a little bit for God. At a certain point, you wonder if that doesn't shift into entirely for me. And number three, would I be happy to have my gifts, strengths, resources deployed in a totally different way? Or do I love what it's getting me? Would I be happy to see God say, nope. I got somebody else who's going to do that. I want you to go over here and do this other thing. And that might mean losing some stuff, but I hope that you're in it for Jesus and not for you. One of the things I want to emphasize is that, uh, that the, the, these are symptoms, okay? That, that's the thing. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, who knows if they were like grifters or who knows if maybe they were a part of the community at the very beginning. We really don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Um, but the, the, the shift of the narrative in Luke-Acts indicates that, that the, the church in Jerusalem stopped doing only this. And we're going to see it again next week. When they stopped doing only this, they got sidetracked into other things. And so the symptoms of that, the symptoms of that are things start to, the devil gets in and strengths and gifts start being subverted. The key then is is to make sure we don't quit this. We got to keep Worshiping, keep our eyes focused on evangelism, on proclaiming Jesus, mission, growing in faith, devotion to scripture, all of the things that keep, the, keep our eyes here. And if we do that, then we have some, some protection from these things. And so let's remain the lampstand. 
Because when we move it, bad things happen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, um, we just pray that Coast Bible Church will always be a place that puts the light on, on Jesus. That everything we do, whatever our programs are, whatever our strengths and gifts are, that, that God will just keep deploying them to see your name raised, you magnified. Jesus lifted up, the Spirit empowering, you God acting, not us, not, not things for us. And God, I do ask for a spirit of conviction on us. Lord, for any of us now who are just, we're, we're holding things, we're, we're engaging in our gifts and our strengths and we're, we're leaning into them because of what they're giving us and not because of what they're doing for you. Lord, give us clarity on that. Give us a spirit of repentance, a willingness to let go. God, let us not be people who hold on Instead, let us be people who are happy, happy to see you glorified in whatever way you need to be glorified, not in the way that we need to glorify you. And God, we lastly just rest in your grace knowing that you are a forgiving God, a redemptive God. There's no place we can go that gets too far away that that ultimately you're always on our side, that you're for us, not against us. And that you who did not withhold your own son will give up nothing to keep pursuing us and growing us and transforming us into his image. In his name we pray, amen.